Hi, everyone. Hi, welcome to the Elite Squad Pod. I'm Brittany. I am Paige. And this is our very special um, tribute to Richard Belzer episode. He passed a week ago today on February 19th. 19th. I want to kick off this episode by a if my sound sounds off, I really apologize. I just have to get a new piece of equipment and oh, it's just like the trials and tribulations of being a podcaster. Like <laughs> we can't help yeah, it. Yeah, mine will do weird shit too, but hopefully not today. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, knock wood. <laughs> Babe, I better not. Oh no, I said I wouldn't sing. Sorry, everybody. I'm not going to do that anymore. Don't make her sing. No more singing. <laughs> Don't <laughs> ask her to sing. Oh, God, is she going to sing again? Ah, shit. The loud one sings too much. (laughs) So I wrote down three trivia facts. Tell me what you got. I'll tell you what I got, and then we'll get into our episode for today. Yeah. So, yeah, we wanted to come up with a couple of fun facts, trivia facts about Richard Belzer. Uh, My favorite one is that he is actor Henry Winkler, a.k.a. Fonzie, a.k.a. The Coach from Waterboy. They're cousins. That is so random. I had I had, so random. had never heard of that until his passing. That's what I everyone in Hollywood is connected to each other. I've decided. There's no one who just like makes it. They're all Nepo Brad babies, Nepo cousins, Nepo sisters. Yeah, no. No no one's in Hollywood just because they're talented. Or I'd be there. <laughs> so my first little little trivia fact is that um Belzer had a poodle fox terrier mix named Bebe. Bebe was adopted by Belzer after he followed him home when he was in France. He became his constant companion, even walking the red carpet with him and hanging out on the set of Law & Order SVU. And in a 2010 interview, he told People Magazine, I think Bebe and I connected based around the fact that Bebe was abused and abandoned. He's a survivor. Besides all that, we connected based around the fact that he is incredibly cute, has an amazing personality, and is really smart. Hey, babe, so that is sweet. so cute. I know. The one, the second one I have is, um, I guess, I hope this isn't like in reverse. No, I don't think so. So he was a warm up act. Richard Belzer was a warm up act for the SNL audience. And then he even appeared in like, I think, three of the earlier episodes in the 70s. So that's pretty cool. You don't get to do that. That's really, it's like very gate kept. No, that is like really cool. I saw this um, interview with um, Joy Behart on The View. And I guess she was actually really good friends with Richard Belzer. And she was talking about watching him come up in the stand-up like comic world and she said he was just I've never seen him do any of his stand-up but she said he was really good and kind of like a comedy legend all right my last fact is that um Belzer believed there was conspiracy to assassinate President JFK and he wrote actually wrote five books discussing conspiracy theories um they are UFOs JFK and Elvis conspiracies you don't have to be crazy to believe dead wrong straight facts in the country's most controversial cover-ups Hit List, an in-depth investigation into the mysterious deaths of witnesses to the JFK assassination, Corporate Conspiracies, How Wall Street Took Over Washington, and Someone is Hiding Something, What Happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. That is so funny because we got really, really, really <laughs> mad at Munch in episode one. We were like, why would they do that to his character? And it was totally him the whole time. I know. We blamed Munch. We were like, how, the, how dare they embarrass Richard Belzer like this? Nope. And turns out <laughs> he's just like that. Sorry, Richard. <laughs> well, my last one, I just learned about this after Richard died, was the Belzer versus Hulk Hogan incident. Did you hear about that? 
didn't like Hulk Hogan like punch him in the face or something by accident? No. Okay. So no one get mad at me, but I'm a little bit on Hulk Hogan's side. However, he was, he should have been smarter about it. Okay. So Richard Belzer used to be the host of a show called Hot Properties, which seemed kind of like a Jimmy Fallon type show. I didn't find other things on it. And by that, I mean, I didn't look into it. I should have. But he wanted Hulk Hogan to come on as a guest. And so Hulk Hogan and Mr. T, this is 1985. He had Hulk Hogan and Mr. T as guests. And so Belzer asked Hulk like multiple times. He said he wanted him to demonstrate a wrestling move on him. And Hulk said like, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. Like it's kind of like for professionals, you know, like probably not. Right. So he finally put him in a headlock and he had him in the front and you see Richard Belzer's body go limp. And so then he, and he goes, oh, should I give him any more? And Mr. T goes, yeah, yeah, knock oh him out. God. But he's like joking. So he went completely limp. And so Hulk like let go of him. And he, cause he was dead weight at that point, he just hit the stage and like cracked his head open. Oh shit. When he got up, you could see there was blood on the stage and he just said instantly, he, I'm making this up, but like he basically was like, and we'll be back to you in a couple of minutes. We'll have to these short commercial breaks. And he said that when he said that, he was like blacked out. He had oh no clue God. that he said it. Yeah. So he ended up, right? So nine, not nine, um, in 1990, he finally sued Hulk Hogan. Oh, okay. Yeah, for damages and, you know, like, fucking his head up. Um, And apparently that was how he was able to buy his house in France, which he named (laughs) Shays Hogan. (laughs) Okay. Rude. Shady. As we said in our opener for last week's episode, we skipped to an episode that was kind of like munch heavy. We skipped to season two. And it was episode four called Legacy. And it aired November 10th, 2000. And boy, did they say to us, they were like, you know what? We're going to Y2K this shit up. It's the new millennia. Everything looks better. Everybody looks better. Everybody looks taller. Everyone grew a little bit over the summer. Like, I can't wait. Oh, it's, it's so good. Um, the only other thing I have to add to that is it was directed by Judd Taylor. He did a lot of TV movies, which I love. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love a good TV film. The 90s and 80s were TV, TV movie central. Oh, I know. They don't make them like they used to. Opening scene. This is November 20th. A Monday morning, once again. <laughs> of course, a Monday. Luckily, this happened on a Monday. Our stapler would have been like, oh, I'm out. No, I can't. I have to go to a picnic and like ruin it with my drama. Um, <laughs> so we're in an Upper West Side apartment and we enter in on Jamie McKenna and uh, she's getting her 15-year-old stepson, Justin, uh, hot. And, <laughs> and I'm allowed to say that Justin's hot because at the time I was only like nine. So whatever. The actor's say birthday is the day before yours. Yeah, I saw that. And he's a Sagittarian king. They're very rare. And presents as such. And presents, yeah, he is angry. Uh, He's really good at being angry. Um, He was also, you know, the movie Jack with Robin Williams? Yeah. He was the friend, Louis Durante, very Italian in that movie. That's like one of those movies you just watch one time because it's like really sad. Oh, yeah. I've only seen it one time. It's upsetting. So like, I don't remember him being in it, but it's because I never intend to. It's a good movie, but I can't ever watch it again. Just makes me sad. Yeah. No one's seen it, but it's basically like Benjamin Button, except for he was born like 30 years old. I kid you not. He's supposed to be like a 40-year-old man (laughs) when he was born. (laughs) He's kind of like Stuart Little. And he was Eddie Haskell in the Dennis the Menace movie, which was pretty important at the time. Um, Also, Jamie dresses, she's supposed to be 29 or 30, but we need to call Carrie Bradshaw in here because she doesn't know what she's doing. She's got um, like a hardcore mom cut, hardcore mom look. Um, she's probably our age and she looks a decade older. 
Yeah, this is why whenever I tell people how old I am, I get like, oh my God, what do you do for your skincare routine? It's because of people like Jamie. It's like the so. year we turned 30, we were supposed to go to the hairdresser and be like, can you give us the Kate Goslin? And when we didn't, yeah. <laughs> people mistake us. <laughs> I need a bouffant, please, immediately. Toot <laughs> sweet. <laughs> okay, so Jamie McKenna, she's going like, come on, everyone. Like, we're getting ready to go to school. Justin, get off the phone. Justin's on the phone at 7 a.m., which I thought was rude. Talking about football. Also at the table is four-year-old Michael, and he's eating. And Jenny, Jamie kind of like gets in his face a little bit. She's like, we're going in 10 minutes, Michael. Michael. Get ready. She then asks if anyone has seen Emily, and she interrupts Justin on the phone to ask again. And in his surliest tone, he goes, well, how should I know? So she stalks off to find Emily. Emily's her seven-year-old daughter. Jamie goes upstairs to this really awesome apartment. And she finds Emily in her room still sleeping. Uh, So she's like trying to get her up. She's like, Emily, come on. Opens the curtains. When she tries to wake Emily up, she like picks her up and she's completely limp. And I was like, oh my God, put her fucking down. I know. She's going to like hurt her spine or something. But um, as Emily slumps forward, you can see this really dark, upsetting bruise on the back of her neck. And Jamie starts yelling for help and banging on the window to get Justin's attention. Yeah. She goes, Justin's come upstairs. Like, what's Justin going to do? I know. Do? I'm like, why wouldn't you say Justin call 911? Hospital. Benson and Stabler are here, and they're speaking with the doctor about Emily's condition. Full disclosure, a lot of gross shit was said, and I didn't write it down because I'm really squeamish, but she basically is showing signs of existing ongoing abuse because she's got, like, fractures, broken bones that are healed, and it would appear sexual trauma. Uh, The reason she's currently in the hospital is she has a subdurable hematoma from a blunt force, from blunt force trauma, Um, and they've done a rape kit. And it seems like the blunt force trauma, um, the pressure would have been building for anywhere between like a couple hours and a day. So that kind of sets the tone. So she's currently in surgery at this time. Stabler asks if she's going to make it. And the doctor says it's too too soon to tell, but says the mother brought her in and indicates to where she's sitting crying with Justin and Michael. Dun, 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 the theme song. We come back and they're still in the hospital and Jamie's talking to Liv and Elliot. So she says that, The day before, uh, so Sunday night, she picked up Emily from a visit with her father. And Emily was upset, but she's always upset after she spends time with him. So Benson says she thought Emily's father was out of town. And Jamie says that her husband, Emily's stepfather, duh, is out of town. But Emily was spending time with her biological dad, who Jamie says is, from a time in my life, I'd rather forget. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Jane Austen. She's like, a time in my life that I would like. Okay, we're not on the Lifetime channel. No, it's like when you're at the bar and some girl really wants to trauma dump on you and you're like, come on, I don't want to. So rude Justin hollers, can we go now? (laughs) He like literally is screaming this whole, (laughs) this whole episode is him yelling. never goes below a seven. He just goes from, (laughs) ranges from a seven to a ten. Right now he's probably only at a seven actually, but. Well, he has a quiz in trigonometry. (laughs) Like who gives, really gives a shit. So Stabler tells him that he's going to have to talk to him too. And Justin, not to be outdone, is like, well, how long is that going to take? He's the fucking worst. The worst. It's like, I again, he's probably the peak of um, there's been like a potential murder and you're worried about literally everything else and mad about it. So, so now Jamie suddenly oh. looks up and goes, oh, God, Paige and I go, oh, God, <laughs> because because, yeah, oh, whoa. Whoa, Denny Carrera, Emily's biological father. Oh, oh, 
he storms in and he demands to see Emily. He's like, I want to see her. Uh, I demand that he remove his jacket so that I could see his arm muscles. Yes, please. I'm demanding to see his abdominals just in case. He squares up with a fellow anger issues Stabler and he's like, who the hell are you? And Stabler's like, who the hell are you? Because you can't take it to a 10 with Stabler. And <laughs> and no, not, expect not to be to, outdone. Yeah. So Jamie and Denny start yelling at each other. He blames her. She blames him. And during that exchange, Jamie, he goes, how could you let this happen? And Jamie responds, because I left her alone with you. And then Denny retorts back, I won't let him get away with this. So they're already doing, it's just like, that was literal, he said, she said right there. Right. <laughs> just like, what did you do? What did you do? I'm not going to let him get away with this. Blah! <laughs> you know, not man. Get away with this. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Sable takes sexy Denny away. And uh, Benson asks Jamie if she thinks that Denny hurt Emily. And Jamie says that Denny has a temper and it got worse after she married her husband, Randall McKenna, Justin's daddy. Um, but she never thought that he would actually hurt Emily. Detective Paige Agrella <laughs> says that it's not the father this time. Okay. <laughs> sexy Denny would never. Detective Agrella was like, mm, innocent. <laughs> so around the corner, we're still at the hospital. Denny tells Stabler that the evening before, Sunday evening, he and Emily watched The Lion King and they had dinner and then Jamie picked Emily up around 6 p.m. Uh, and he says he shouldn't have let her go back to that house with that monster Jamie McKenna or Jamie married Randall McKenna. He's claiming that Randall McKenna has been touching her. And Stabler asks if Emily has told him this. And Denny says she didn't have to. I hate when someone says she didn't have to because that immediately makes my ears perk up. Yeah, she kind of did because that's how we figure out crimes. Mm -hmm. So he saw the bruises and when he asked what happened, she just started to cry. He has reported it, but Jamie has told the caseworker it was him. Denny tells Stabler that Jamie wants what she wants no matter who she hurts. Oh, I have a note that Denny is played by, I think it's Yancey Arias. And I just need to note that he must be so good at doing police procedurals because he has been in almost every fucking police procedural ever. Law and Order, SVU, CSI, CSI Miami, The Mentalist, CSI New York, Elementary, Bones, Castle, Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, Number, CSI Vegas, and last year, Law and Order, Organized Crime. I also looked up Denny because I needed to know mostly if he was married and lives in New York still. Um, but yeah, he's been in like 80 trillion like crime procedurals. Dun dun. Uh, Station Bullpen, this is where we get our first glimpse at season two Munch slash King Richard Belzer. He's dressed all in black. He already is carrying self himself in a different way. He seems to be standing taller. He seems a little bit more dignified, more distinguished, mm. more mature, sexier. And there's a new friend in the bullpen and it's iced tea. And I'm so happy he's here. We got Finn Tintuola with us. And this is only episode four. So I forget when we got him originally like if it was episode one I or whatever but think it's episode one so i think cassidy is going to leave halfway through season one to go work on oz they're going to bring jeffries more to the foreground and then she is going to leave end of season one so stabler is telling the gang it's a classic he said she said with a twist Cragen asks what the doctors say she has been suffering long-term abuse but the head injury occurred in a 10 to 24 hour window she has been sexually abused long term did the, so the rape kit found a bristle and a hair yeah. or just a bristle? Yeah, so the rape kit turned up a bristle and a hair, a nylon bristle and a hair. But they were like, okay, not to be a jerk, but it's like, they were like, oh my God, I wonder what this is from. And I'm like, uh, I've heard of people beating their kids with hairbrushes before. It was like embedded into her, I guess her buttock, like the skin. It's kind of like in, I think it was episode two or three where the model was sexually assaulted with the hammer. And they're like, 
oh, I wonder what she was. She was beaten and then assaulted. And the thing had a wooden handle. I'm like, a hammer? A hammer, perhaps? A wooden handled hammer? Yeah, no, it's kind of like that. The reason we're not on the squad is that we would solve all the crimes in like two minutes. Munch asks about Emily's father and Stabler says that Denny is 32 and he served a short jail sentence in 1993 for assault and robbery. And currently he works as a cook at the same school that Emily attends, which is like a fancy private school. So Craigan then asks about the husband. He is Randall McKenna, 40-ish, an investment banker with a Wall Street firm. He has one son with Jamie, that's Michael, and then one from a previous marriage who's Justin. Both boys were home, and now we're learning that the younger boy has a learning disability and he's nonverbal. And then they're like, Justin didn't add much. Uh, So Finn asks how Denny and Jamie got together in the first place because Jamie is a society gal and Denny is, he called him a fry cook. Olivia says that seven years ago, Jamie was an amphetamine addict, (laughs) the the 90s amphetamine addiction, and she was sent to rehab to detox. Uh, At the rehab, she met Denny, who is a dance instructor, and they had a brief affair that resulted in her pregnancy with Emily. So my question is, was Denny a dance instructor, like a part of like a class to help people get through their addiction? Is that what they're insinuating? Yeah, okay. I think like, because it was supposed to be like a, um, you know, like a detox. It was probably like a fancy schmancy she one probably because went to a really Jamie's nice rich. One, yeah. Jamie's mother, Lois, was furious over the affair and demanded that Denny be fired from the clinic. Um, and Jamie's mother is a rich lady uh, with rich lady connections. But then upon like my fifth rewatch, I realized that she was married. Jamie's father was like the ambassador of America or some shit. I don't even know. That's what they say. They're like, he was the ambassador. I'm like, all right, I guess he was the American ambassador then. So that's why Jamie's got all this money. And um, Tutuola and Munch are asked to go to ACS, which stands for the Administration for Children's Services. Dun, dun. So we are now at the home of Lois Huntington, and we're mid-conversation. So Stabler is saying, so you're saying Denny raped Jamie. And Lois says she was vulnerable and he took advantage. And then Olivia kind of chimes in and is like, so you, but you supported giving him... Was it partial custody or did he have full custody? Okay, so this was my other confusing. um, And I was thinking that too. I'm like, so the custody agreement is very, very confusing. (laughs) I I think sometimes it changes a little bit to suit the scene. He was awarded custody because when Emily was born, she was sick. They didn't say like, you know, she was on, I guess she was addicted to amphetamines. And because of that, Danny was awarded custody. I would say full custody. It sounds like they had he had partial they they had joint custody up until she died but the first couple years of her life i think um denny had full custody because jamie was still in recovery that's what it sounds like after she met randall mckenna or what kind of right up until she met randall mckenna emily got clean and lois says that she wanted to better her life and she wanted emily to be a part of her life it's like well yeah it's her fucking daughter it's not really like an option but that's just so selfish like emily has had this life that she's like adapted to with Denny. And now all of a sudden Jamie's like, I want you to be a part of my Park Avenue life. It's like, screw you. So we also find out um, Jamie's background because uh, Olivia basically was like, how long has her drug addiction been an issue? And Lois gets all offended. She goes, you make her sound like a common junkie. And that she was addicted to weight loss pills. Um, and that basically Jamie was kind of incorrigible mm-hmm. uh, because her father, yeah, uh, she was daddy's little girl and the father overindulged her. And then after he died, although we don't know how he died, she overindulged herself, which is what led to discipline issues. And Lois said that she sent Jamie away at 11 years old to boarding school. Why do people do that? It never helps. It certainly does not help. Poor Jamie. Lois is just such a nasty piece of work. You can tell she's like one of those people that thinks she like does humanitarian work and then calls people with substance misuse a junkie. Fuck you, bitch. Right. 
Yeah, no, she's a fucking ass. And then saying, oh, she was daddy's little girl. Uh, okay, Detective Agrella has arrived on the scene. Hey, guys. Mm. <laughs> Paige is sniffing around and she smells something. Uh, this picture of President Clinton smells like incest. Mm. So. Lois says that Randall supported Jamie suing Denny for custody. And the day after Jamie filed, Denny basically punched Rand- Randall in the face. Now, this has put Denny in a really bad position because Randall now says he won't press charges if Denny agrees to sign over full custody to Randall and Jamie. Um, Denny has until this Friday, remember, this is now Monday, has until this coming Friday to agree. And overall, Lois is horrible. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Administration for Child Services. The uh, ACS rep is telling Munch and Finn that their first contact with Emily was in April 1994 when Emily was born. Uh, She was born sick because of Jamie's active addiction, and they awarded primary custody to Denny. Jamie started challenging the arrangement a year ago, and she started making abuse allegations, although every time ACS has investigated, they have not found any proof. And then Finn rightfully asks if her broken bones weren't proof enough, and the caseworker says that all her injuries are basically just kind of consistent with normal childhood injuries, like, you know, breaking an arm, climbing a tree, or... Yeah, but did you ever break? I never broke. The, the only thing I ever broke when I was a kid was I broke one of my toes, I'm pretty sure, because it hurt. Because um, I kicked a rock at the beach, like one of the big rocks. I don't even know why I did that. Did you ever break anything? No, I actually belong to the No Broken Bones Club. Yeah, same here. Woo! I mean, except for probably my toe. Toes but. and fingers, in my opinion, do not count. Except uh, even though I have not break, broken any of those either. I probably, you know what? I could walk, so I probably didn't even break it. But yeah, no, I never broke my bones. So I feel like this kind of was a weird... I don't actually even know a lot of people who, like, you know, you'd have that one, one-off kid in, like, elementary school who broke their arm skiing or some stupid shit. These injuries um, don't seem like something kids could do to themselves by accident. So Munch starts to give her shit about this most recent injury, and she says that they followed procedure. And then he asks if that lets her sleep at night. And I'm like, good God, don't talk to people who work in child services like that. They do their fucking best. The system's broken. They are... Busting their ass in a broken system. Yeah, you do get, there are cases, really bad cases, where actually this one is based on a case where ACS shit the bed. Oh, yeah. My only other note about this scene is that um, I called this person a caseworker. I don't know if that was her job or if she was more of an administrator, but she's played by Michelle Hurst, and she's going to be in four more ep- episodes as different characters. Um, she's probably most famous for her role as Miss Claudette in Orange is the New Black. Dun dun! We're at Emily's school. So Emily's teacher says that Denny is a really good dad and he works three shifts in the kitchen at the school and still finds time to visit Emily's class for story time. Uh, And he likes to regale them with stories about his childhood in Cuba. I'd be like, and Denny, do you want to stay for nap time? (laughs) You and I could go nap in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about Cuba, Denny. (laughs) Was it? hot there. So Finn asked the teacher um, that if Denny basically was such a good dad, why did she feel the need to report Emily's injuries with child services? And she confirms, because we said this last episode, that by law, she is required to report injuries, even if they seem like they could be childhood mishaps, which she really doesn't seem convinced that they were either. She's a much better teacher than Dickie's dumbass teacher, who's like, has a kid who's like, what if your dad beats you? And she's like, no, we're talking about child molesters. So Munch asks the teacher how she thinks Emily broke her leg, and she says that Emily told her that she broke it while learning how to ride a bike. Um, Denny was teaching her on a bike that he bought her. And the teacher doesn't believe that Denny is the person abusing Emily, so she does seem to think that there's abuse happening, but that it wouldn't be Denny. And she said in six years that 
she's known him and Emily that he's never even like raised her vo- his voice at her before. So Munch now asks if there are any other adults that have had prolonged contact with her. And she says, yes, it's Henry Abaddon. He is a minister of protocol for the Brunei mission. And Paige, can we, what the fuck was this whole fucking weird ass scenario? Um, in the real life case, the little girl did, she ended up at a Montessori school and the Prince of Greece or some shit, like met her one day. The principal introduced her to the Prince of Greece and she like, you know, same thing. Like she like sat on his lap and he just like fell in love with her and offered to pay for her schooling until she was like 18 years old. Um, so yeah, he's just like a rich guy. Um, and apparently the ambassador. It is deeply concerning when an adult has a pointed interest in a child. Yep. And this is super fucking weird and everyone acts like it's not that weird. This is fucking Finn agrees. Too, because as soon as she mentions that, Finn does this thing with his eyes where he looks over at Munch like, uh, what? (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? So the teacher says that Henry reads to her, he takes her to dance class, and he takes her to the theater, which I've got the, I've got a huge ick. I've got the ick. So Finn asks if there's another student in the school that Emily was super close with, and uh, the teacher says that she was best friends with a little girl named Jennifer. Dun dun. Dun, dun. Now we're in the classroom with Jennifer. She is... A star. She is so cute. She is adorable. So She's this little blue sweater on. She's got little matching, like I know it's now two thousand, but like a nineties, like kind of like hair thing. She's that kid's a star. She's so cute. She kind of looks a little bit like Dakota Fanning. She does. She's an actress in her own right. But when I first noticed her, I was like, wow, she looks so familiar. And like, I think it's because she looks a little like Dakota Fanning. So Munch introduces himself, and she giggles at his name, and it's. It's a really sweet scene. He jokes with her. She's really, she seems to take to him. It's it's a very cute scene. It's adorable. He says, she's like, oh, Munch is a funny name. And he said that if he had kids, he would call them Munchkins like the donut holes because big donuts are donuts. Munchkins are donuts, <laughs> little donut holes. Um, so Munch asks Jennifer about Emily and she says that she doesn't want to talk about Emily behind her back. Um, Jennifer is a real one. It was kind of was giving that it's like when you're, when your friend's like cheating and you're like, um, I can't really tell you what she was doing because she was out being a hoe. She was that's not what was happening. Well, no, because she Jennifer was seven. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. So Munch says that it's okay if we talk about Emily because someone hurt her and they're trying to help her. And he asks Jennifer about Henry Abaddon. And Jennifer says that Henry is fun and he makes everyone laugh with his funny songs. And I'm like, ew. (laughs) I know. I was like, okay. Munch asks about Emily's father and Jennifer gets a little nervous um, saying that Denny was mad because Jamie was trying to take, well, she said that Emily's mommy was trying to take Emily away from him. Jennifer then says that Denny and Emily were going to go on a trip, but it was a secret. And it turns out they were going to go to Cuba. Jennifer then tells Munch she has a Barbie with hair that grows if he wants to see it. I do, Jennifer. You are so fun. I do, cute. too. They leave the classroom, and Finn says he's going to check with the airlines, just like airlines, to see if Denny's plan to take Emily to Cuba was true. Munch gets stuck in the child seat that he's sitting on, and he can't get up for a second, and it was kind of funny. I used to work in a classroom, and those child seats are so difficult because you're in a really difficult position when you're sitting in them because your legs are, like, really high up, and you're trying to, like, book it across the classroom to stop a kid from, like, eating Play-Doh. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. Station bullpen. So we got Benson, Stabler, Finn, and Munch, and they're kind of just recounting everything that we just said to you is everything they repeat back to themselves. Finn shows them what he dug up on the airlines. Denny did, in fact, plan to take Emily to Cuba on a one-way flight departing from Quebec 
this Friday. So the same day that he was supposed to surrender his custodial rights or risk going to jail was the day he intended on bouncing out of the country. Yes. And rightfully so. Oh, yeah. And now it's time to bring Denny in for an interrogation. Munch and Stabler are interrogating Sexy Denny about his past non-sexy infractions. And they ask him what made him beat the tar out of Randall McKenna a few weeks ago. Denny says that he went to speak to Randall father to father about the custody filing um, because they just wanted to cut Denny out entirely. And Randall pushed him, I guess, because kind of like Denny was like not leaving him alone. And so Denny lost his temper and beat the hell out of him. Yep. Sexy Denny with his sexy ass, angry face. So Stabler then pushes him about a store clerk. And Denny explains that he was hungry. He had just defected to America. And when he arrived there, he was given no assistance. So he went into a convenience store. And when he tried to steal food because he was hungry, the clerk pulled a gun on him. And as we've established, Denny doesn't like people making the first moves. Mm -mm. So he also beat the tar out of this man. Yeah, he was a 1993 Jean Valjean. Yes. They point out um, that it seems as though it's always everyone else's fault in these stories that Denny tells them, but he's the one who ends up like beating the shit out of people, now, <laughs> which is kind of a good point. I, I am on Denny's side and I 100% think he should be getting full custody of Emily and what they're doing to him is awful, but he is committing, he is beating people and you can't fucking do that, dude. And now you have a daughter to care for and you basically give the other family he gave them this ammunition and i'm like he needs to he doesn't even hold himself accountable for that like he's never like oh i can't believe i did this he's like and now they're trying to like take her away from me i'm like dude yeah you're beating people up and so that's what they say to him they're like well you know you're so comfortable beating the shit out of everybody why wouldn't you do it to emily and he says that he would never have ever hurt emily um so at that point craigan opens the door and he um whistles at munch and stabler to come outside outside the interrogation room, and Liv is also there. So Kraken tells them Denny isn't the guy. They have the sample from the rape kit, and it does not match his blood type. We cut pretty much immediately to Kraken's office. Not true. Did I miss anything? J.K. Simmons is here. I, he has a name, and I'm going to call him fucking J.K. Dr. J.K. Simmons. I don't care. Yeah, it's Dr. Emil Skoda. Born to play the role of J. Jonah Jameson in Spider-Man. Like, he was born for that. He's so good in everything he is, but he was truly born to play the guy who's always yelling about pictures for Spider-Man. He was really good in Oz, too, because he was disgusting. Now we get to have our pants on, which is nice. Fuck you, bug. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I also wrote down that um, I'm attracted to J.K. Simmons in the scene, and that's why I was, I think I might have been... I might have been uh, having an emotional day because I was attracted to a lot of people. No, everyone's <laughs> like, like really is- hot in this episode. I have never seen JK's. I feel like now that we're watching SVU an, an entire decade older than when we first watched it, everyone, you see everyone with a little bit of a different lens. So Cragen is saying that now that Denny's ruled out, they need to reassess. And Dr. J.K. Simmons says that child molesters are adept at manipulating the emotions and perceptions. And this case is complex because the abuser basically has to deal with the fact that Emily exists in two different worlds, both um, at the McKenna's and then at her father's. Yeah, this was confusing. I wrote down that um, I thought that his diagnosis or his criminal profile was a little confusing, too. And I feel like it's entirely unhelpful in the grand scheme of the episode. Because he was like, yeah, no, this person would be adept at manipulating, but it would be harder for them to be manipulative because 
there were two households to manipulate around. And I'm like, okay. This is why they fired you for BD Wong. They had displaced rage over probably potential sexual inadequacies or about abuse in their own childhood. Olivia says, okay, so this person had low self-esteem. So Skoda says the same insecurities that cause him, the abuser, to be abnormal. These types of ab- this type of insecurity would also help him excel in other ways, such as business. So this person's likely successful. And Stabler says that Randall McKenna seems to fit that profile perfectly, mostly because he's what rich, I guess. We don't know him yeah. otherwise. He then tells the group that they originally thought he couldn't possibly have been around because he had left for business, but they checked his flight and he he had a window up of opportunity. Basically, Olivia brings up the friend who took Emily to see the Lion King. So Benson and Stabler are like, "Okay, we have to question Randall. And then Cragen asks Munch and Finn to go talk to Henry Abaddon. Dun dun. So we're at Randall McKenna's office. Randall is kind of packing up and he tells them that he has a meeting they used to get to as usual. No one ever has fucking time. It's like your stepdaughter's in a coma. But go ahead. Yeah, no. Go to your fucking meeting at 30 Rock. This can wait. He's hot, but also a huge fucking prick. Um, He has a fading black eye. And Stabler and Benson are like, all right, we'll we'll make this quick. How did you and Jamie get together? Um, He says they were introduced at a party. Um, He was separated from his first wife at the time. Probably not. (laughs) Was he introduced to her by Lois? Is that what they said? Yep. Lois was a client of his. So I guess he's like an investment banker or something. Randall and Jamie have been married for three years. And so Stabler makes a comment that that seems pretty interesting because um, Michael is four years old. Randall asks, yeah, what the point is. And Stabler says, where were you on Sunday night? Randall says he was at the office and then he went home. So Olivia asks if he spent any quality time with his stepdaughter when he got home. And Randall asks, what are you implying? Like, what do you think? They go back and forth with him about his fight with Denny. And then they explain to him the blood blood evidence has excluded Denny. So he gets pissy and he's like, and now you want my blood now. Basically, Olivia says, yeah, it seems more like you were trying to cover up the abuse by cutting off the one person who was actually holding you accountable for it. He does typical rich guy shit. And he's like, from now on, you can talk to me through my lawyers. They're going to get a they're going to get a court order because, again, it's like, what the fuck? It's a bunch of dumb rich people in this episode. This is, yeah, the dumb rich people episode. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. We're at Henry Abaddon's office. Um, So Munch and Finn are handling that. Abaddon says that he's been a friend of Lois Huntington's for a while, um, even when her husband was alive. So that makes sense because I'm like, how the hell else would he have met this little girl? But um, Oh, I just want to note that um, when Henry was speaking with Lois, she was telling him that the Greenbrier School might be a good beneficiary for the royal family. And Henry's kind of this like in between. I don't really understand it. So just go with us. It's, yeah, I don't it, know. It all just, ends up not fucking rich. mattering anyway. Yeah, he's just like a rich guy and they're creepy rich people. They're probably lizard people. Finn asks about the movie that Henry took Emily to on Sunday. So before she went back to her dad's house, she went to a matinee of The Lion King. I assumed it was a um, Broadway show, would, would be my guess. Yeah, sure. Just because they're fucking yeah, rich probably. people. <laughs> Lois came with them, which I'm actually like kind of glad that these people have some semblance of being appropriate, but they don't tell Denny that Lois goes on these excursions. But it does seem like Denny doesn't have a problem with Henry. It's really weird that he never brings him up. You know, like, wouldn't that be? Neither of them are like, oh, do you think Henry? By the way, it's not. Henry's just a fucking red herring. So (laughs) that's why we keep being like, oh, none of this really fucking matters. Abaddon says that he understands why Munch and Finn are a little bit suspicious of this whole thing, um, but that Emily won his heart with her beautiful spirit, and he will do everything it takes to make sure that whoever hurt her is jailed for a very long time. Good. Although it's weird. It's, I think it's weird, but 
it will turn out he didn't do it. And dun dun. Now we're at Justin's school. Benson and Stabler find him and he's just like, oh, God. <laughs> he's already at, a, at an eight, about to go to a 10. He's just like, he would be really annoying to deal with interpersonally, like even at school. You know, like he's just like fucking like if you like even as a girl, if you're like, hey, Justin, do- <laughs> it's like, sorry, I was just wondering if you had notes. You said you would take notes for me. I do. I do, I do I have notes? I don't know. <laughs> Basically, nothing happens in this scene. They ask him questions. He is, he is, insists he was sleeping the whole time, never heard anything. And the only thing we glean from this entire scene from Angry Justin is that he says he has heard Randall and Jamie arguing about Emily and that his father is never home now because Randall and Jamie are just like constantly arguing. I do feel a little bad for Justin because that would suck. It's like your dad cheats on your mom, basically. Now, it appears that he lives with them full time. So I don't know if the mom just like fucked off to Aspen or something oh. after. But like, yeah, so that'd be annoying. And then you move in with your your dad and his new annoying wife, who's only like 15 years older than you. And all should they do is fucking argue and like bullshit. You know, like I would piss me off too. I feel I feel poorly for Justin. I'm just taking the piss from him because he is so mad all the time. Dun dun. So now we are back at the station. Um, they're eating lunch, <laughs> which I've never seen them eat. So actually, this is kind of refreshing. I think they're eating Chinese food. Not that that matters, but. <laughs> oh, don't. Why did you say that? Now I want it. Oh, my God. Now I'm going to go out in Chinese food. Sunday. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm so crab excited. and goons for me. Craig and asked them all for an update. Uh, Finn says that Abaddon agreed to a blood sample, so probably didn't do it. <laughs> Olivia says that Randall McKenna's lawyer it called and they are refusing. Alexandra Cabot's here. She's a beautiful, graceful, gorgeous, blonde queen. Um, Stephanie March is too good for Bobby Flay. Fuck you, Bobby Flay. Um, all of this to say that Alexandra Cabot is meeting with um, Judge Petrovsky in the morning to get a court order for the blood sample. Oh, wait, is she here or, or did? No, she's not here. Oh, shit. Sorry, <laughs> guys. I'm just excited. I love her. No, I mean, we can still leave that in because she is here. She's, She's in the episode. She, she will be here in a minute was what I was saying. Yeah. To the mere mention of her name sends us into an absolute tizzy. She's beautiful. And she's... <laughs> she's amazing. Ugh. Stabler remarks that, sadly, because they ask for um, an update on Emily, she is still in her coma. And the, right then, we pan over. Camera pans over to Munch, who's sitting deep in thought. And he looks pensive, but disturbed over this whole thing. Yeah, He wasn't eating either. Dun, dun. We cut to this really sweet scene at the hospital. Um, Munch arrives to Emily's room and he pulls out a, like a little stuffed lion and leaves it by her side. I don't know why, but my grandmother, um, when I was growing up, wanted me to read this book with her so we could discuss it. It was called A Lion to Guard Us. I don't know. It's, it's about these like little kids. Their mother passes away and their dad has like left years ago to Jamestown. Like this is like old and olden times. So, I was going to say to Jamestown. So they like go like they stow away on a boat to America and they just have like this little like brass lion head to like watch over them as a talisman. I don't know. So I was just like, oh, like Munch brought like a lion to guard her. It was it's a really yeah. sweet scene. It's so sweet. And, you know, she loves the Lion King. Um, that was her last day before she went into her coma, which was spent doing Lion King things. And also, I thought it was kind of cool. I'm an astrology gal. Because um, Richard Belter's a Leo. So I thought it was kind of neat that he was bringing her like a lion toy, you know, because it's sort of like he was her protector, too. Yeah. He is the lion to guard her. Dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun. Uh, we're at Judge Petrovsky's office. <laughs> Finally, Cabot's he actually. She's actually there here she this is. time. And she's talking like this, very quietly, enunciates her P's 
And she's sexy as hell. Oh, sorry. I'm, I guess I'm thirsty for Stephanie March, too. I feel, I just feel strength in her presence. You know, like we had no ADAs. We were like a motherless child back in season one. We had no ADAs. And now we have our ADA and she's awesome. Listen, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I'm fairly certain um, Cabot could beat the absolute shit out of Abby Carmichael. <laughs> Wow. Um I don't hate hmm. Abby Carmichael. I just think Cabot No, no, no. Could, like, beat her up. No. I'm considering. I'm like, could she? I don't know. Okay. Hmm. Cabot. Am I being a blonde? I might just be being a blonde um hater. Bigot. Yeah, bigot because I'm like I'm like I don't know. She's so very blonde. Can a blonde person really beat the shit out of anybody? So, okay. Cabot, Novak, Carmichael. I'm not going to count Greylick cuz she would get her ass beat in the first round. Oh my god, she wouldn't even be able to stand up. Out of these three women, who's coming out on top? Actually, I don't know. Novak Novak has gotten her shit rocked a few times in the show and she's still back. So sorry. I don't think Casey could fight. I forget who Sharon Stone's ADA was, but she's winning that fight. If she gets in. She would just eat their heads. We are in Judge Petrovsky's office. We're going to see her, I think, many times in the future. She's kind of like a... Yes. Cabot tells Judge Petrovsky that Randall is refusing to give them a blood sample. And the lawyer basically says that it's because there isn't a good reason to. Uh, he gave like a, a fancy lawyer term, but I didn't write it down. And I'm like, excuse me, um, there's a case of a child who is in a coma from severe physical abuse. There's probably sexual abuse. This is literally all reason. Yeah. And basically Cabot lays out the entire case and basically says that. And so Judge Petrovsky turns to this lawyer and she's like, okay, well, can Randall prove where he was during the window, his window of opportunity? And his lawyer's dumbass is like, well, he was at home with his family. And Cabot's like, fucking yeah. She was like, not to be redundant, Your Honor, but that's exactly our point. And Petrovsky's like, yeah, f- all right, fucker. If he doesn't present himself by 10 a.m. tomorrow with his blood sample, he's going to get fucked. So, dun dun. Um, the station, I think. I wrote that because, once again, sometimes we're places and I just assume it's the station. I, I too, assume the station. It did look a little brighter, though. It looks like they have blue wallpaper at the station now. When did that happen? Olivia stops Alex, and she says that Randall McKenna didn't show up to his hearing. Cragen says that they need to keep tabs on Randall, and if he's one minute late for his blood sample appointment the next day, they're going to arrest him for contempt. And Elliot, who is ever on the phone. Oh my god, I wrote that down, too. Stabler always gets these calls. He's always, and he was on the phone with Munch because he just goes, thanks, Munch. And he tells everyone, he said that the reason that Randall didn't show up to his hearing that day was because he is now in critical condition. And he ironically has cerebral hemorrhage, uh, as we know, Emily was hemorrhaging, due to blunt force trauma and that someone beat the hell out of him. And I just wrote, duh, why, sexy Danny? Why? We immediately cut to Danny Correa's apartment. His landlord is saying that she hasn't seen Denny since yesterday. Um, Munch asks if he seemed upset when she saw him. She's like, eh, he repeats himself louder. And she goes, you don't have to shout at me. (laughs) She's funny. They always have funny landlords. They open Denny's apartment door and the landlady is telling them that Denny was worried about Emily because her mother, quote, married a very bad man. Uh, He has a really nice painting on the wall, actually, when they walk in. I was like, that's a nice painting. So Munch enters Emily's room and it's adorable. It's like basically like wall to ceiling toys, but like arranged tastefully. It's, it's really sweet. And on the nightstand, Munch finds the book, uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. And he kind of takes it with him. Never forget in college, one of our friends convinced me that Dr. Seuss, 
like went to our college or taught at our college or something. And I believed that for years and I looked it up and it was fucking fake and I told other people. No, I remember hearing that and I remember thinking this can't possibly be true. I think I thought of it more like maybe like it was so long ago that maybe he like went to some like subsidiary of our school or some shit. It was all fucking bullshit. Sorry, that's going to get loud. I'm just going to vacuum this motherfucker up now. Son of a bitch. Anyway. So while Munch is going through um, Emily's room, he gets a call from Benson. Denny was caught at the hospital trying to sneak in to see Emily. As he comes out to talk to Finn, Finn has found a bloody t-shirt hidden in a drawer. So A, I am heartbroken for Denny because I can't imagine, I understand that he shouldn't have beat Randall up, but your your seven-year-old's in a coma. You know you're not going to be able to see her possibly ever again. And now you can't kind of because of, you know, his own shit. But also, regarding the hospital, he just wanted to see her one more time. But also, B, I wrote, why the fuck, sexy Denny, would you ever keep that shirt? Burn it. Throw it Throw out. it in the East River. Yeah. What the hell? He's not even good at crimes. It's kind of No, kind of he's too sexy for that. Ugh. He's too honest. He's too sexy for his shirt. So, dun dun. Interrogation room. Benson and Stabler are interrogating Denny. Uh, they tell him that a witness saw Denny at the scene of Randall Mc- where Randall McKenna was uh, beaten and attacked. And Stabler notes that Denny's knuckles are split open. Now, <laughs> I just want to say, my knuckles split open all the time in the winter from really dry skin. So I'd be like, joke's on you. I have a pre-existing condition. I have eczema, asshole. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Denny. Denny is all distraught. And once again, he didn't mean to hurt Randall. Uh, I know. But like, Denny, this like literally keeps happening. Sweetie, sweetie, you should have gone to therapy years ago. So Denny says he ultimately realizes that he could not possibly hand over custody of Emily to Randall because he thinks that Randall is molesting Emily. And so he was like, I'm I'm just not going to do that. It seems like Jamie on the side told him that he has broken the deal and Randall's going to press charges. That's the first time we're hearing of this, right? That he, they're just going to go through with pressing the charges and taking Emily away. Um, he was waiting for Randall outside of his office because he, he wanted to just kind of like, again, talk to him father to father and be like, yo, if you guys report me, like, I don't want to give up custody of my kid. But if you guys report me, I could get deported. And I, like, please just stop being a fucking dick is essentially what he was trying to beg Randall. And so Randall, when he saw Denny, started yelling at him that he would call the cops. Denny tried to reason with him uh, and Randall laughed in his face. And said that he was already as good as deported, basically. So Denny says he blacked out and just started. I, I always, that's never happened to me. I mean, well, I blacked out. But like, never, I've never gotten so mad that I blacked out. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, he used to start, like, that's always to me. I'm like, you did not black out. You couldn't control yourself. But he came to when he was beating Randall. Uh, and he wasn't moving. Randall wasn't moving. So Denny went to a payphone. Remember those? Called 911. Then he went home and changed. Dumbass kept the shirt. You had all that time. Yes. Could have just taken your. Sh- and then he went to see Emily just one more time before he was going to turn himself in. It's pretty sad. Now, I wrote here that it's interesting to me that Elliot, a father stabler, did not get into his feels about Denny. Like, he gets into his feels every fucking episode. But for this guy, a guy who is potentially going to lose his daughter and she's going to live with the man abusing her, and he's like, huh, I'm a cop. I've got to investigate this. Why would I ever take this personally? I'm like, because you take every case personally, Stabler. Every case involving a child, you go out of your way to make about you, except for this one. You know why? Because she was Elizabeth's age and he forgets about Elizabeth. Oh, that's... (laughs) I love that. 
very he's like i don't have a child that i can compare this to so like your book said Kathleen kind of inserted herself. That was probably a cry for attention from Kathleen. So she didn't end up like Elizabeth, forgotten. Maureen said that to her. She goes, oh, she's like, why does dad only pay attention to you? She goes, oh, because I like, you know, just start shit. I just yell things at the dinner table and Kathleen's like, I'm going to give this a fucking try. <laughs> dun dun. So it's Munch who's defending Denny to Cragen. Basically, like what he did was illegal, but he was kind of backed into a corner. Olivia, meanwhile, is talking on the phone as they kind of go back and forth about Denny. Um, But when she gets off the phone, she tells them that the bristle from the rape kit came back. It's from a brush. Uh, Detectives Porter knew that from page one of my notes, but whatever. So Olivia goes on to say that, uh, oh yeah, that I think you said this, that Randall's DNA didn't match, but that preliminary analysis tagged someone in Randall's immediate bloodline. So they're like, (gasps) angry Justin. Angry Justin. Not sad, Michael, because he's four. Done, done. We're at the McKenna apartment. Jamie's worked up and squeaking uh, that Munch and Olivia are there to, to search the home for the brush. And she goes, but we're the victims. I hate Jamie. She's so fucking annoying. She's the worst. It's like, ugh, you, first you look like that. You got your shitty hair. You're looking at me. Uh, so I, she must be a good actress, actually, because she's very infuriating and she hasn't really done anything yet except for talk. So Munch enters Emily's room and he finds a music box. And I'm pretty sure I had that music box. He opens the box and he finds a hospital bracelet attached to the music box key. What? It's super like, random. What? It's so strange. He's, is he wearing gloves? Because he kind of just tucks this in his pocket. He doesn't, he doesn't put it in an evidence bag like I would have. It's kind of like how he took the book, though. Like he took her book. He's kind of turning to leave Emily's room and he sees four-year-old poor sad Michael and he's just standing there watching him. It was almost like he was dissociating, but also like on the verge of tears. So then we enter Justin's room and Stabler is going through Justin's drawers and he finds a hairbrush. Whoa. Paige, how does Justin feel about Stabler being in his room? You might be shocked to find that he's not happy. He's fucking furious. Storms and he goes, hey, what are you doing? That's mine. Oh, no, you shouldn't have said that. And then we cut immediately to um, the interrogation room. Dun, dun. Justin says, this wouldn't have happened if that bitch hadn't sucked my dad. And I go, wait, where is this going? Into her crappy life. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what the fuck? Oh, okay. <laughs> true, true. She has sucked your dad. <laughs> Into her crappy life. Anyway. <laughs> Stabler asks if the same applies to Emily. And Justin replies that all she does is cry. And I'm like, ugh, that's so sad. This household sounds like fucking hell on earth. Jamie and Randall are fighting. Poor Michael is like silent and dealing with everything. Emily's crying and Justin's yelling. This household fucking blows. No wonder Emily bawls her eyes out every time she's to go home. She's literally probably in chronic physical pain from whoever's doing this to her. And it's just a nightmare at home. So he claims he has never touched Emily. Um, and now he suggests that it could be Jamie. And, but all he knows, everything was fine until she showed up and he's just like super fucking angry. He says, maybe the bitch did it, uh, implying Jamie, which it's like, do you know something? So we're in a separate room and Olivia has Jamie in this separate interrogation room. Jamie says that sometimes, sometimes she, I'm sorry, I'm only laughing because like her story has changed like five times. Jamie tells Olivia that sometimes she would find Emily crying in her room and Justin would just be standing in the doorway watching. 
Uh, again, why didn't we mention this sooner? She says that she knows Justin resented Emily for attention that Randall was showing her, but she didn't think he would ever hurt her. Olivia says that Justin told them that Randall and Jamie fight about Emily a lot. Jamie says no. In fact, if they ever argued at all, it was about Justin's attitude towards Emily. And now too bad uh, Randall's now in a coma and can't chime in one way or the other. Olivia asks if Justin was alone with Emily on Sunday night. Jamie says that she took Michael to the pharmacy to get his asthma medication and that the line was very long, so it took them a while to get back. Randall had been working late night, as said, and when Jamie got home, Emily was in bed and she looked peaceful, so she thought that she was sleeping. How could I be so blind? Outside the interrogation room, Stabler informs Cragen that the hair sample from the brush came back a positive match for Justin. Um, And Cragen's kind of asking Munch about Justin. He says he's very angry, but he's not ready to give up any information. So Cragen's like, you know, stamp, stomp alone over his rights and toss him in a cell. Uh, and they also mentioned that that's probably why Randall was like very staunchly against giving his DNA. Like maybe he didn't want to, like maybe he had suspicions that his son was abusing her and he didn't want to like, you know, implicate him. Um, I think he was just being a dick, frankly. Oh yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Um, so now we move over to the bullpen. Sabler leads Justin past Munch and Olivia and Jamie, and he's in handcuffs. He hasn't even mentioned, like, his dad's in, like, a coma and, like, might not wake up. And he, like, didn't even say anything about it. I've just realized, like... No, I didn't even think about that either. He just seems like his normal level of anger, like, angry. So Jamie asks Olivia if there's anything else she can do to help. Um, She can write down her statement if you want. She kind of says it like that. Uh, Liv says that they have it all on tape and that they can take care of paperwork in the morning. And Jamie's like, well, um, all right. And then she walks out. So Munch notes that Jamie seemed disappointed that they didn't need anything else from her. And I thought that too, actually, before he even said it. I was like, she seems kind of like, oh, okay, sure. Finn asks Munch why he doesn't seem convinced. And Munch notes that there isn't a single hospital record that they've turned up regarding Emily's existing injuries. And then Munch produces the hospital bracelet that's attached to the music key. And the bracelet's got the name Erica Smith on it. But no one from Emily's school or dance classes knows who that is. Yeah, so Munch and Finn kind of head off to look into this. Um, They head to the Hudson... Dun-dun. So they head over to the Hudson Free Clinic, um, where they have a nurse look up Erica Smith. She was brought in, disturbingly, for vaginal bleeding. Um, And they prescribed something and sent her home. Uh, yeah, nobody is really alarmed by this. No, she says it in like a way that should be like, oh yeah, Brittany Porter came in for a cold. I am a 32-year-old woman and I have never experienced vaginal bleeding. Menstruation is different, everybody. Right, right. Uh, and that was on May 20th. So it's actually, it was like six months to the day that Emily was um, checked into the hospital for her hemorrhaging. Um, so Finn asks, <laughs> what kind of, oh, we're asking, uh, if anyone at the clinic filed an abuse report, uh, and they did, but CPS ever followed up, and neither did the mother. They ask if there was um, an address, and there is, so the nurse, like, kind of turns the screen and shows it to them. And once again, it's one of those things where they're, they're like, that's the middle of the East River. Um, it's all that to say. It's, it's fucking fake. It's a fake address. And Punch and Finn are like, motherfucker. Motherfucker, we've been had. They actually say we've been had. So they realize that Jamie's dumb ass has been lying. I knew I didn't like her. Dun dun! So at the station, Finn says he checked x-rays from the clinic and that they match the same injuries that Emily has. Um, that there are also four other hospitals where Jamie brought Emily for treatment for her abuse, but she would use aliases and pay in cash, so there was no paper trail. I, did not, I thought you had to present an ID, but I guess, like, you don't. 
But I thought that was weird. I'm like, why wouldn't they, especially if they thought it was child abuse, but whatever. Olivia suggests that Jamie is probably covering up for Randall or Justin at this point. But Munch says that they've all just been assuming that the attacker is male because of the sexual abuse. But maybe it's just Jamie all along. This was like, they kind of get into like, it's almost like she might have Munchausen's by proxy. Yeah, they never use that term, but that's potentially like what they're talking about. So, but Olivia asks, well, what if Emily dies in the process and fucking J.K. Simmons, who must have been like hiding out under one of their desks, just kind of saunters in and goes, bonus. So then he says, Emily is a means to an end for Jamie. And the end is attention, sympathy, love. It's very likely that Jamie was abused and now she is carrying out this abuse on her daughter. Yeah, they kind of say that um, this, the, the abuse makes the abuser feel important and it's also kind of like it gets some attention. So it, it is weird. It's like she's probably abusing her out of rage and trauma from her own past, but also she has like kind of Munchausen by proxy now. But it's like they're not calling it that, but they're like saying that she's addicted to being a victim. So having a sick child would make you an instant victim. But then she also tries to hide it, which is kind of, yeah, that's what Stabler says. So Stabler asks why Jamie would be using aliases if she wanted to like shroud herself in victimhood and get attention. And Craigan says it was probably to avoid a rape kit analysis that would have excluded Denny um, and it would have gotten rid of her scapegoat. So until Justin showed up. It's yeah, it's a little convoluted, but that's it. That's what they're thinking right now. Just the drama of this case, like the custody battle, everything. It's like, that's sort of like fueling her is how it sounds. So they decide that the best thing to do now is to go back and talk to Justin and see what they can get out of him. Honestly, they don't really get much from him. He's... No. At this point, they're... This is what Stabler says to him. Anyway, they go back to talk to Justin. He's still fucking salty. And they're like, can you go back over your story? Um, Jamie says he was the only one alone with Emily that night. And Justin is such a fucking dolt that Stabler finally gets in his face and he's like, we are trying to help you. Do you want to go to jail? And Stabler's like, okay, young man, you stop this behavior. Stop it. We've wanted to do this all episode because Je- <laughs> speaking of incorrigible. So Justin says he doesn't know. He, again, he's like, I do- he doesn't know how long Jamie was gone for. Um, and that as soon as Jamie left, he went for a run in the park and he was gone for about an hour. Stabler asks if Jamie said anything to him when he returned, and he says that she chewed him out for leaving Emily alone in the apartment. And Justin says that Emily was sleeping at the time, so he didn't see the point in watching her, and he just left. Back outside the um, interrogation room, Munch says that Jamie could have hurt Emily before Justin got home, but they need some corroborating testimony. And apparently they had talked to a really unhelpful doorman earlier that we didn't see, and Cragen's like, you need to go back to talk to this guy. So, dun-dun! They go back to the McKenna apartment building. And the doorman's going on and on about how bad she feels for Jamie because of all the fuck shit. That's all I can say about this. Like, everything that's been going on, it's just a lot of fuck shit. Oh, yeah. Stabler and Benson ask him if he saw J- the doorman, if he saw Jamie leave with Michael on Sunday night. And he says that they were headed down to the pharmacy down the block. Uh, and right after Justin left, um, and this is all around 9 p.m. Which my country ass is like, this is so late. Oh my God, I am on the couch watching TV by nine and will be going to bed presently. It is too late to be going to the pharmacy because most of them close around eight anyway. So this is like a very lenient pharmacy. And the doorman was right because he said that he warned Justin about how dangerous the park is at night. But did Justin listen? No. No, because he's not the woman from the next episode you're going to hear. He's fine. They ask when Jamie returned and the doorman says he didn't see because he might have been taking a power nap at the time. And that's when Munch walks up right behind them and he says he checked with the pharmacy and 
A copy of Jamie's receipt says that she checked out of the pharmacy at 9.09 p.m., which was after closing. So Jamie lied because earlier she said that she and Michael were waiting in line for a long time. So she actually got there after closing. She Karened. So they like let her in, yep. basically. She called them in with a Karen. And they, they waited five to ten minutes for her to get there. Yeah, Karen is fuck. She also looks like a Karen with her dumb hair and everything. Jamie is a Karen. Confirmed. So Munch has like did the walk from the pharmacy to the apartment and he's like it takes about five minutes maybe 10 if you're you have like a four-year-old with you so olivia then walks over to munch and stabler and she's like the doorman missed jamie but he did see justin come back around 10 so now we're learning that she did have about 40 minutes by herself in this apartment where she could have done something essentially they're able to kind of rule out justin here because he just wouldn't have had time to do all that Dun dun, Cragen's office, and we got the whole squad plus Cabot. Cabot says that unless they place Jamie in the apartment at the time of the assault, they don't have a case. I thought that they could do that, but I guess because the doorman didn't see her return, they can't. Um, But Finn asks about all the hospital fraud, and Cabot says that since Jamie paid, it isn't fraud. And I'm like, okay, sure, I guess. Okay, as long as I have money, I can say whatever I want at the hospital. Basically, yeah. Good to know. Munch reminds them that Skoda, a.k.a. Dr. J.K. Simmons, said that Jamie, the person who did this most likely, Jamie, would have had a need for attention. And he tells them that he gave Jamie his pager number, just in case she needed to talk to anybody during this whole thing, and that since then, Jamie's been blowing up his pager nonstop. And he suggests that she is fixing for some attention, and he could feed into it. And that's how they're gonna get her. And he does. I was so, he did a really good job with this because I felt like my needs were being met watching this scene. Dun dun. So they're in an interrogation room and Munch is, he walks in, he's got some like tea for Jamie and he's being very warm with her. He thanks her for coming down to the station. They just have a few more questions. And she says that anything that she can do to help, she wants to, you know, participate. So the whole squad's just outside watching this. (laughs) Like everybody, including (laughs) Cabot, just outside So Munch tells Jamie that they're holding Justin until he can be arraigned and that after that they can release him into her custody if she wants to take him. Jamie says she's scared of Justin now because she believes that he hurt Emily to get back at her. And she's just breathy the whole time. She's like, I'm afraid of Justin. I think he hurt Emily to get back at me. It's like a little childlike. She's creepy. We actually haven't done her voice I at all. I am actually shocked we haven't in- done an impression of this bitch. I'm surprised too, actually. I'm a little, now I'm like, what a blur the last two hours have been. I'm like, how, how did we not? Yeah, she's like, oh, Emily, I'm scared of Justin now. So um, Munch says that it must be hard to be treated like an outcast in her own home. And she says, you don't know the half of it. And Munch goes, actually, I do. And he pushes a file over to Jamie. And she opens it and she gets like really excited. She goes, oh, this is my file. I thought it was sealed. And Munch says it is, but he has a friend that got it to him. And I'm like, well, this seems unethical. Because there was a friend at CPS, that social worker that sounds with John, where remembers Jamie because her superiors were really nervous about investigating an ambassador for sexually abusing his 11-year-old daughter. I knew it. Ding, ding, ding. We've got incest. The incest sniffer always knows daddy's little girl is not a sentence you use. She's getting a little bit, you know, in her victimness now. She's triggered. And Munch starts to play on that mentality. And he goes, this must have been, that must have been very hard for you. And he asks how Jamie's mother reacted to the abuse. And Jamie says that her mother was jealous because daddy couldn't stand to touch her. Are you under the impression that, I want to say this delicately, 
she is a victim who believes she had a relationship with her father. Yes. Um, I believe that actually I was thinking that about her mother too. It seems like some victims, because I think a lot of abusers also presented as though it's a relationship. Um, it seems that she is now using that to kind of rationalize what her father did to her and not maybe see it as like he was abusing her. Munch says that Lois abandoned Jamie and it must have been hard facing the same type of rejection from your own daughter um, in reference to Emily preferring Denny and also knowing that Denny was going to be taking her away to Cuba soon. Munch then tells Jamie that Emily came out of her coma, told them everything, and that Emily wants to see Jamie. Jamie doesn't seem to care. Not at all. Um, He does say they have to straighten out some details first, starting with the hairbrush. It's Justin's! Jamie immediately bursts out and says Emily's a liar, and Denny has poisoned her against Jamie, because, you know, Jamie's always the victim. It's very painful. So Munch softly asks for her side of the story so she can heal. Jamie pauses, and she says that in the car on the way back from Denny's house on Sunday night, Emily wouldn't stop crying. And now we know that probably it was because she just didn't want to fucking go back to that house, all these fucking crazy people. Emily told Jamie that she was going to be leaving with Denny and they were going to be leaving her forever. So Jamie pulled the car over, pulled Emily out of the back seat. Then Emily fell and hit her head. The munch goes, come on, Jamie. And Jamie switches the story immediately. And she goes, well, I didn't push her that hard. Now, um, she finally did stop crying after she hit her head, probably because she had a fucking concussion. Oh, and she said she was sleepy. So I think, yeah, so I think Emily actually has a concussion here. And when they get home, Jamie put her to bed. That's when she went. So she put Jamie to bed and then she put, took Michael to the drugstore. And then when they get home from the drugstore, her face gets stony and she goes, but when we came back, she was crying again. So Munch asks if that's why Jamie used the hairbrush on her. And Jamie says, yes, it was to teach her a lesson because that's what her mother had done to teach her. And what, what could I do? And so Munch replies, the only thing you could. He is trying to co-sign Jamie's belief that the world is against her. So her seven-year-old daughter was acting out because she was being a dick. It's kind of the way that this is all being presented at him. Jamie pauses and looks directly at him. And this was so aggressive. And she goes, I threw her against the wall. Cue music. And this finally makes Emily stop crying. And Jamie's like, so I tucked her into bed and I kissed her on the cheek and I wished her good night. Um, I will note through this entire thing, Jamie sounds like she's crying, but there are no tears. I don't know if the actress couldn't like pull him out, but I think it's kind of just to show that she- <laughs> it's an act. She's she's putting it on. And Munch is pretty much like end scene. He gets up, silently leaves the room. Um, his back is still clearly bothering him from earlier. He kind of like is not limping, but walking with kind of like the gait of someone who's in a little bit of pain. Um. Cr- I wrote Craig here instead of Craig, and then that just made me laugh. So <laughs> Craig. Craig tells him good work, um, but Munch isn't even, like, listening to any of them. He just, like, basically keeps walking out of the room. So Olivia follows him out, um, and they head up to, like, the roof. Sorry, I want to get this thing. It's really disgusting. I don't think I got it, but... Olivia follows him out. Um, up, it seems, like, up to a roof, I think. Uh, and she finds him on the roof staring at the sky. Um, so she says that it was good instincts that they took this risk by lying and saying that Emily came out of her coma. So she really isn't out of her coma. It was something they were saying to try to, like, kind of get Jamie to confess. And she says that it would have been screwed if Jamie had actually pressed to see Emily. And uh, that's when Munch goes, she doesn't care about those kids. And he could tell just based on 
the look in little Michael's eyes when he saw him that day when they were searching for the hairbrush. It reminds him of a story from when he was a teenager. This little girl would stand on the porch across from his apartment and she would just wait for him and just stare at him whenever he would come home. And he said that sometimes she had a bloody lip, sometimes she would have a black eye, but she was always just there waiting for him. And it felt like that she wanted to tell him something, but he said that he was too involved in his own teenage crap to really like care. One day he came home and she wasn't there and he found out later that her mother had thrown her through a plate glass window. Um, He did go to her funeral and he said that um, he saw her father and it was the first time he had ever seen a grown man cry. And Belzer actually kind of wells up at this. Um, He he is flawless in this scene. Um, The mother was sent to a sanitarium and she said to Munch's mother, I don't know what the fuss is about. I'm the one who has to get a new window. But it's like, bitch, no, you don't. Now you're... You're going away because you're no, fucking... No, you don't need a window. <laughs> yeah, there, there are bars where you're going, sweetheart. Munch says that months later, he would walk home and he would look up at the porch. He could swear that he could see the little girl standing there and watching him. And he feels like with Emily's case, he almost let her down again. He kind of just like... I like how he just keeps walking away from people. He basically tells Olivia his story and then he's like, all right, thanks for following me up here. And he just like walks away. And Olivia just kind of stares after him. So Munch returns to Emily's hospital room. He has brought his purloined copy of Oh, the Places You'll Go. And he just kind of sits down and starts reading to her. And I noted that he flipped to kind of like a middle page, which to me implied that maybe he had been doing this all week. Yeah. Coming to read to her. He's really sweet. It really was. I'm actually tearing up. I'm sorry. I'm so glad you picked this episode. This was a really, first of all, it's just a really good episode. It's a really good um, showcase for Belzer's range. He normally gets to be kind of like the funny, sarcastic one. And in this one, he gets to show his true depth. And sometimes you're kind of like, why the fuck does he even like do this work? And I think she, this girl that he saw is probably kind of a factor for that. I thought that too. I was like, it doesn't really seem like he actually like, gives a shit about anybody you know he's just making fun of the victims this one and again we talked about you know Brittany mentioned that there were different writers season one but this one really was the episode that's why I wanted to cover it that made me think he was one of the more you know like softer kind of more mature detectives and that's why season one was so (laughs) jarring it was very jarring no this is horrific I've read that Richard Belzer was abused by his mother um like she would he says that he became a comedian because making his mom laugh would stop her from beating him. So I have I read that too. I have to ask, not ask you, but like in the like grand scheme of things, I wonder what it was like to film this episode for him. That's a good question, actually, because it was literally about mothers abusing. Because most of the time we get the cases where, well, in actually, I would say in most cases, it's the father abusing. So this must have been super personal. This is a true story. It's based on the murder of Alicia Izquierdo from New York City, actually. Trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. The real case is so much more fucked up than oh, this. God. It is an awful, awful case. Uh, it was one of those ones that I read at work and I shouldn't have done it because then it was just like the rest of the like day. Ruins, I was like, oh, yeah. my God. That was uh, she was um, our age. She would have been 34 on February 11th. Not that we're some, you know, podcast with a message, but I don't know. Keep your eye out. If you see something, say something like. Yeah. These people get away with doing that because people don't want to believe the worst in other people. And 
there are really fucked up people out there. So, you know what? Stay safe and stay fucking suspicious of everybody. It's it's kind of a tough, it's a tougher episode, but it really did highlight Richard Belzer's acting um, just in general. And I feel like we didn't even like double down on that too much, but it was just so seamless, you know? I was attracted to him. So are we going to do our fun bit where we share conspiracy theories because Richard Belzer was a real life conspiracy theorist? Yes, I thought for some funsies, let's exchange our favorite uh, conspiracy theories. What's, what's yours? I don't know if what I'm about to tell you is like a bona fide conspiracy theory. The one I heard is that <clears throat> Joe Biden is dead. He was killed by the liberals so that they could take a government plant and put that person in prosthetics and have that person pretend to be Joe Biden. So the man that we see on the television is not really Joe Biden. That man is an imposter. Who is the imposter, do you ask? (laughs) Well, it's James Woods, the actor. Gasp. (laughs) But James Woods is a staunch Republican. How could, well, that's what they want you to think. Oh, shit. Who is they, you ask me? Oh, um, it's the reptilians. (laughs) That is a good one. Yeah, top that. Well, I don't know if I can top that, but I will say my favorite conspiracy theory might also be one of yours, and it's that birds aren't real. They are robots. Ronald Reagan, during his administration, had all the birds killed, replaced them with robots, and they are fucking watching our every goddamn move page. (laughs) I just thought of, guys, this is real. Please subscribe to the Birds Aren't Real website. Instagram so much. Brittany got. She got a mailer, like a newsletter around Christmas, and it was basically about how the 12 days of Christmas is government propaganda. It's It's so good. I'm wearing my um, Birds Aren't Real shirt that my brother-in-law got me. Um, I also have another shirt that says bird watching goes both ways, and it's a bird with binoculars. It's so good. So the next episode you guys are going to hear is going to be uh, season one. Is it episode eight? Stopped? Episode eight. Yeah. So we're going back to season one. Um, This was kind of a bonus. Uh, Episode nine of ours. But yeah, so next week, we're going to be doing season one, episode eight, stalked. We did not have a good time recording this. I don't know what to tell you guys. (laughs) There was some stuff working against us. Um, Mostly, I was super tired. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It was a good I mean, it's a good episode. I still have to listen. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this very uh, Belzer episode. Um, R.I.P. Richard, thank you so much for your contributions to the world. And I hope you were listening to this and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know. I hope we did you justice, Richard. And uh, we love you. Rest in peace, Alicia Izquierdo, who this episode is based off of. Anyway, thank you, Elite Squad. Sorry that this was so sad, but you love this show. (laughs) It's... Yeah, why else would you be here? Just kidding. We love you guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. Later, squad. Bye. Bye.